So, as was mentioned earlier on, we're starting a new sermon series uh, for the whole month of November and the first week of December, which is going to be called The Creed. Uh, The Creed is basically an affirmation of what Christians believe. And we have various creeds in the church which have been uh, thought over uh, very carefully because they provide a basis for belief, common basis for belief for Christians around the world to say the same things, to agree the same things. And so that's why we thought we'd have a little look at the creed. We don't really do much liturgy uh, in our church. You may go to some churches and they say the creed every single week. Uh, We haven't done that, but I thought it'd be quite fun for us to dip our toe in the water for the next few weeks about what Christians believe. And therefore, if you're here as a Christian, you might be thinking, I don't really know what I believe as a Christian. Here's a great chance for you to discover what you actually believe as a Christian. Uh, Maybe you're not a Christian and you're thinking, I'd love to know what Christians believe. Again, this is a great opportunity for you to find out what Christians believe. So we're going to go through uh, the creed and I thought I'd say a little bit about what the creed is and then we're going to have a go at saying it all together um, as uh, something that is done in other churches. We thought we'd have a go at doing that um, again today. Just to say, uh, creed uh, from credo, meaning I believe in Latin, is basically the beliefs of the church. And from very early on, in the beginning of the New Testament, uh, from very few years after Jesus' resurrection, the church had already begun to gather what they felt were beliefs, core beliefs about Jesus. Their whole life had been turned upside down by this person called Jesus. They had to try and put together, what does this mean now? How do we make sense of this? So the very earliest creedal statement in the New Testament is very simple. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And Paul quotes that quite often because it was clearly something that was spoken about and used as a creedal statement. There were other creedal statements early on that you'll find, particularly in 1 Corinthians and Romans, where Paul is quoting what the congregation, what the Christians already believed. And as the church grew and expanded, not just to the Middle East where it started, but to all over uh, Europe, they began to realize we need to codify this. We need to decide this is what we believe. Let's hold on to the essentials so that everyone knows what the Christian faith means. And the very earliest creed that we have is known as the Apostles' Creed. It's the shortest creed that is used by different uh, uh, Christians around the world. And it basically is the essentials about God, Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit, the church. And uh, and that's what we're going to be going through over the next five weeks. Uh, Every time you write down a creed, there are bits where people go, but hang on, what about this? What does it mean by that? And therefore, various other creeds were expanded over time. The Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, they had 300 theologians who gathered together and debated exactly what they wanted to make everything clear as possible. So they expanded it. The Council of Constantinople, 381, uh, went a bit further. So there are a whole bunch of different creeds. But we want to start with the shortest because it's the simplest. And we're going to go with that all together. And what it begins with is by saying, we believe. We believe. That's what creed means. We believe. And it starts with those words. And I think this is really important that we say, we, not I. You can say I if you like. And there's nothing wrong with saying, I believe this. But I think to say, we believe this is hugely 
countercultural in our time. Because if you look at the division that is happening across every particular structure of society, across politics, socioeconomically, across different uh, parties, religions, there tends to be more and more fragmentation. You look at the history of the church, sadly, is a history of fragmentation. And what we need is unity. In a, in a church and in a society which is more and more fragmented, there's something really countercultural saying, we believe this. Not just we believe this in this church, if you're a Christian, but when you say these words, you are uniting with the other Christians in Bristol who are saying the creed, who say, we believe this across the denominations. But not just that, the whole of the UK. Not just that, the whole of the world. And across denominations, not Anglican, but uh, not just Anglican, but all denominations who are believing the same thing. And not just throughout the world, but throughout history. This is something that has been said since about this, the Apostles' Creed is two, roughly in the second century. So there's something really powerful about saying, we believe this, we hold on to this, we trust in this. So, are we ready? That was a little introduction. Should we have, should we have a little go at saying the Apostles' Creed? And I'd love to encourage you, if you're a Christian, to have a go at saying this. If you're not a Christian, that's fine, you don't have to say it. But if you'd like to, we're going to say these words together. Are you ready? They're going to come up on the screen. Ready? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Fantastic. That is the Apostles' Creed. And you may have been reading those things through and thinking, hang on, what does that mean? I've just said it. What does it mean? We're going to unpack that. That's the purpose of these next five weeks. And also just to reassure you, these words have not been put together this week by me on a computer. These have been here since the second century, debated over, thought about, fought about since the earliest days. And these are, these are absolutely concrete foundational things of the Christian church. But as I said, we'll be unpacking that over the next few, next few weeks. So what are we going to do today? Today, I thought we'd have a go at that first little bit to expand the first part, which says this, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Where does that idea come from? Well, it's all the way through scripture. But here's a little example. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6 says uh, this. I think we've got it on the screen. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. So there's a, that's a way of saying that statement, but in a different way. So I'm going to split this into two parts. The first part is we believe in God, the creator. The second part is the Father, the Almighty. Okay, so the first part, we believe in God, the Creator. Uh, a few years ago, I was, quite a few years ago actually now, I was uh, 
studying philosophy and theology in Oxford. And at that time, it was the emergence of what was known as the new atheism. Uh, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, various other people writing very aggressively and from a scientific point of view, basically to dismiss faith in anything other than what we can see and understand. And uh, it was particularly had a go at Christians. And uh, the new atheism basically portrayed belief in God, whether it be Christians or Muslims or anyone who had a belief in God, as at best illogical and at worst, in Dawkins' words, completely deluded. And that aggressive stance became a source of great debate. So there were debates all the time while I was in Oxford. Does God exist? Is there any evidence? Is there any scientific evidence for his existence? Now, the tone of the debate was incredibly aggressive. And uh, there were lots of fantastic arguments made on both sides. But what I think I've seen over the last few years is that the debate has moved on. And there is a recognition that you cannot prove scientifically that there is no God. You cannot prove scientifically that there is a God. The question of God's divinity is a philosophical question, but science can really take us a long way in pointing us in certain directions. Now, people would arrive at different conclusions, but it is not something that can be proved conclusively one way or the other uh, through the scientific worldview. In fact, many people have been writing who are not Christians to defend belief in God as a theory. Uh, there's various people. So um, Ian McGilchrist, if you've read uh, his book, The Divided Mind, The Left Brain and Right Brain, he is a, a neuroscientist and has been arguing that we've been overly consumed in the Western world with the left brain, which is about uh, logical deduction. But there are whole other parts of the brain which also impact the way we process information. Uh, there's uh, Tom Holland, I mentioned a few weeks ago, who himself doesn't describe himself as a Christian, but is a historian, very respected historian. But he's gone through to see, well, actually, the impact on Christian faith in our society is so strong, it's very hard to realize that we swim in the waters of Christian belief. So we got to the point where there is a question about God that still remains. Does God exist? And obviously, in a short talk like this, we can't unpack all of that. But the, the point of this particular statement says, I believe in God, we believe in God, the creator. Is there any evidence that God created this world? Is there any evidence for God at all? In fact, if I asked you, if you believe in God, why do you believe in God? Do you have an answer? What is your answer? If someone said to you tomorrow, why do you believe in God? What reason would you give? Uh, the Apostle Paul says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. What reason would you give? I'm interested. If I took a poll here, I reckon some people would have maybe a scientific argument. Others might have a philosophical argument. Uh, others of you would just say, this has made sense of my life. Others of you would say, I've grown up with this and it works. It works for me. All of those are very valid arguments. But I think it's really helpful for us to think a little bit about why it is that we believe. So every worldview has to come up with an answer to the universe. Every worldview has to try and one work out, why are we here? And here are some of the questions that people have been posing recently. From a Christian point of view, 
Why is there something rather than nothing? Why does anything exist at all? Why is the universe so finely tuned? If the universe had physical constants, even slightly different values, it simply could not support life. And it would expand too quickly in the, in the Big Bang. There would be no space for forming carbon atoms or making complex molecules like DNA. Why is that? Why is the universe so complex and yet, in many ways, so ordered? Why is the universe intelligible? Why is it that human minds, through science and mathematics, can make sense of the world? Why does that happen? Some people have said, in very simplistic terms, did matter create minds? In other words, are minds just the product of evolutionary matter? Or is it possible that mind created matter? Is it, does it help us to understand our consciousness as not just about the physical state of our brain, but about something more profound? Is there anything that makes sense of your conversations with other people? Is there any ultimate meaning? If you say to someone, I love you, is it just the product of your attraction? Or is there something more interesting and profound there? What about music? Is music just the firing of synapses in the brain? Or is there something more profound when you experience that best piece of music or the most beautiful piece of art? I don't know if you were anyone uh, go to bonfire night. Uh, did anyone did anyone watch any fireworks? Anyone so far? Yes, just a few. Last night I had my kids. I gave them sparklers, and uh, we had some friends round, and they had a great time. And, and we went out, and we had a little look over South Bristol. You could see all the fireworks displays that are happening around Bristol. It was absolutely phenomenal. But after a while, you've seen one firework, you've seen them all. A little bit boring. I began to look up at the sky, and you look at the stars. And have you ever had that moment when you looked up at the stars and thought, wow, what is that? Where has that come from? It's so beautiful and yet so big and so profound. Maybe that's just how things are. The Bible would argue it's so profound. The reason why we experience these things is because there is a creator. In the, in the Psalms, it talks about, and he made the stars. It's like a throwaway line, just like that. But God created. So that when you experience music or art or beauty or love, these things all reflect the creator who is creative and intelligent and set things in motion. So... Uh, those are just some thoughts. I could go on. But the claim of the Bible is that God created. That actually we are not just the product of random forces, but we're here on purpose. There is a purpose. There's no coincidence here that your life is not a coincidence. You're not an accident, a cosmic accident. Your life means something because God created you. It's mind-blowing that the God of the whole universe might create me and you with a purpose. Psalm 24 puts it like this, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. 
So you might say, okay, well, maybe that's a reasonable argument for the cosmos to say that there was a creator. But what difference does that make at all to anyone? That's a really good question. And in fact, you might say, well, maybe there is a God, but what kind of God are we talking about? Has he set the world up and left it to run? Because I have no, can't see any evidence of any interaction. Well, this is where the second part of this creedal statement is important. I believe in God the Almighty, yes. Creator of heaven and earth, yes. But the other word that's missing there is Father. I believe in God the Father. And the understanding of God the Father is unique to Christianity. Why? Because it has its origin in Jesus' teaching. Jesus taught that Yahweh was not just the God of the infinite who created the world, the heavens and the earth, but the God who has drawn close as a father. The one who loves us as a father. In fact, when Jesus prayed, he said, Abba, Father, not just Father, but Daddy. There was this amazing intimacy to Jesus' relationship with the Creator that no one else had seen before. It was mind-blowing. In fact, Jesus began to teach his disciples, when you pray, pray like that. Pray, pray our Father in heaven. And then he taught about it. The teaching of Jesus centered around the character of God as Father. So we're going to have a look at one of those stories. It's probably a very well-known story to most of you, but it's found in Luke chapter 15. So if you want to turn to it, feel free to do so. Follow along on your phone or we'll have it on the screen. But it is the story of the prodigal son. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. The lowest possible situation for a Jewish man at the time. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your, like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Can you picture the scene? We probably are over familiar with this story. But can you picture the scene of Jesus, the rabbi? He's been known to teach well. He's gathered a bit of a crowd. And this entirely Jewish audience were listening to him teach about a father and a son. 
Those who were kind of switched on to the rabbi's way of teaching might have been thinking, hang on, the father, this is probably Yahweh. This is probably God. The son is probably Israel because that we've been mentioned that way in our scriptures before. And the son is lost. Yeah, that just about sums us up. You see, the picture that we have here is of a son who rejects his father. It's quite a strong rejection, actually. The words he says is, Father, give me my share of the inheritance, which in Jewish terms equates to, Father, I wish you were dead. You're dead to me. I can't wait for you to die to get my inheritance. I wish you'd die. Give me my inheritance now. That is a complete breaking of relationship. Not only was it a breaking of relationship, but it was a huge source of shame. The the honor-shame culture that still exists in the Middle East was there, right there. For the father to have his son take his half of the inheritance and leave home brought huge shame on the father. Not only the father, but the family. Not only the family, but the whole community. This was serious. And so off goes the son. Is this Israel? They're wondering, is this Israel? Have we broken our relationship with Yahweh? Yes, I think we probably have. So they're thinking, well, what is Yahweh going to do? How is he going to punish us? Because they all knew what would happen next. It says that the younger son decides, I'm better off actually going back to my father. He's sensible. He hasn't got anywhere else to go. I'll go back as a hired servant. What's going to happen next? Well, in Jewish culture, again, they would have seen what was coming. Because they had a ceremony in this sort of situation when a son comes home having broken relationship with the father. It's called the Kezazar ceremony. And what would happen is that everyone within the town, if they knew that this person was coming back, they would go out to the border of the town, to the town limits, and they would take with them clay jars. And as the uh, person was coming home, they would take these jars and symbolically smash them on the ground. And this was to say, this is what our relationship is like now. It is in pieces. In fact, not just in pieces. It is irredeemable. This cannot be put back together. This was ostracization of the one who tried to come home. So the, all the Jewish audience are going, okay, this is what's going to happen. God, Yahweh, has rejected us. We're going to have the Kezazar ceremony. So what happens in the story that Jesus is telling? Well, there's a bit of a surprise in there. It says, while he was still a long way off, the father ran to meet him. Why is he running? Well, because he wants to get there before everyone else in the village performs the Kezazar ceremony. The man runs because he wants to beat them to it. Before his son is rejected forever, he wants to get there first. That is his passion, to meet his son. And for him to run, my goodness, talk about shame he's already experienced. This is the height of shame because in that culture, men did not run. Certainly, uh, um, well-standing men did not run. Slaves might have run. Children might have run. But, But for grown adults to run, no, absolutely not. Why does he run? Because he is desperate to see his son. The listeners would have been going, what? This is not how Yahweh behaves. Yahweh is Yahweh. Yahweh takes revenge on those who have left him. There's not that approach. And yet Jesus says, no, no, no. This is what God is really like. 
the shame that that son had brought on his father, the shame that he had brought on himself, was completely extinguished. Why? Because the father took even more shame on himself. He was willing to risk absolute humiliation for the sake of his son. And as Jesus is telling this story, you can see the penny beginning to drop. Whoa, if God is like this, this is amazing. It means that everything I've done wrong, I can go back to the Father and he will welcome me with open arms. No, 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 it's too good to be true. But is it true? No, 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 it's too good. But could it be true? The profundity of this change overwhelmed the listeners to the extent that they recorded this story. They recorded Jesus telling this story because it had such a profound effect on them. The, the story's been come, become known as the prodigal son. But many commentators, these are, these are headings that have been put in later. Prodigal basically means reckless. But many people have since said, no, no, that's the wrong title. It's not the prodigal son, not the reckless son. Sure, he was reckless. This should be called the prodigal God. How reckless was this father to run out and embrace his son? Because that's the recklessness of the God we serve, who loves us, who runs to us, who lets everything else go for the sake of his children. Becoming a father, for me, has really helped me grasp this. I don't know what your relationship is like with your dad, Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not bad. But as I become a father, I look at my children, my daughter, and I think, I would do anything for you. I would risk everything for you. I look at my son and think the same. That's just a little flavor of how God feels about you. He would do anything for you. In fact, he has done everything for you. In the person of Jesus, he died He took all the punishment on himself. He took all the shame on himself to come to you, to run to you, to put his arms around you and say, I love you. You're forgiven. You're accepted. You're mine. I'm with you. The danger when we think about God is that we are a bit cold. The danger when we think about belief in God is that we just think with the left brain. That we're incredibly rational about it and we think, is there any basis for belief in God? But to believe that God is our Father is not a question of rational assent. I mean, it is partly, but it's far more than that. I remember when I was 11 years old uh, and I'd been going along dutifully, forced by my parents to church for many, many years. And I went, I was, I met someone uh, on a summer holiday camp and uh, this was a bit slightly older Christian. He said, can I pray for you? And I said, um, yes, because that's what you're supposed to say when someone says, can I pray for you? So I said, yes. And he said, uh, do you know God? And I said, yes, I've been a Christian all my life, 11 years. I've seen it all. I've done it all. I know everything. And he said, okay, but do you, do you know, do you know how much God loves you? And I said, yes, yes. Yeah, the answer's Jesus. And, uh, and, he, and he said, this is great, but do you think I could just pray for you that you might know even more? And he prayed for me and he prayed a very simple prayer. He just said, Lord, show Toby how much you love him as his father. And I sort of was like, <sighs> politely waiting. How long did you wait until you open your eyes? And as I was waiting, I just had this amazing sense of love. It's like profound sense that God loved me. 
I knew he loved everyone. It's 101 in Bible study. But actually, he loved me. I felt amazing. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it really had an impact on me. I, I stood and I was with this guy and we were next to a swimming pool and I said, I feel amazing. He said, what do you feel? And I said, I just feel so much love from God. And uh, I said, I want to jump into a swimming pool, that swimming pool. And he said, go on then. <laughs> and I did. I had all my clothes on. I just ran and jumped in. I was completely soaking wet. But I was so happy. I didn't really care what anyone thought. I felt completely reckless because of the reckless love I felt and experienced. And this has happened to me a number of times. I can't tell you that I feel reckless abandoned towards God all the time. But I know that every time I pray and ask the Holy Spirit to remind me who God is, that he's my father, that he loves me, that he embraces me, I feel loved by him. And that is the Christian experience. The Christian experience, the Christian life is not to just believe that God exists, but to know that he loves you, that he forgives you, that he's for you, he's with you. And there's nothing you can do that will make him love you any less. And nothing you can do to impress him that will make, you, make him love you more. He just loves you because he loves you because he loves you. I believe in God Almighty, the Father. He loves you. The God who created the heavens loves you like a dad. The best dad you can imagine. So when we say these words, let's believe them in our heads, but let's experience them in our hearts. Yeah, Jesus says, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? St. Paul says, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, that he's our Father. And our hearts cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. It's the most profound, life-changing experience you can have. And I'd love us to pray for that afresh tonight. So let's pray. Should we stand and we're going to pray together? You might want to close your eyes if you find that helpful just to avoid distractions. But we're just going to pray together. We're going to pray that God would come by his Holy Spirit and fill us again with a knowledge of the Father's love. And just, just now you might want to just picture Jesus in front of you as he is. He's here right now, but you could just picture him in front of you. And, and his arms are open wide. And he's welcoming you. And all you have to do is say, I'm open. I'm open to you. And Jesus' words are, he says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So I'd like to encourage you just to ask and say, Lord, please fill me again right now with your Holy Spirit. Fill my heart again with your love through the Holy Spirit.